when I get here, I get so involved, I just get into a different world. So last time uh, I taught, we're going through the covenants, and last time I taught, we started on the priestly covenant. And uh, I forgot to turn the recorder on, so a number of you were wanting to listen to that, and there are some people that don't go to this class who are wanting to listen. So being as I didn't have the recorder on, I thought today we would do just a short review of what I said last time to get everybody up to speed, and then we'll move on. But the first thing I wanted to do was talk a little bit about the God behind the covenants. Because sometimes we assume a lot of things or we don't think through a lot of things and we just take these covenants for granted. We read them, they're there. We don't think much about them or why they're there, how they're there, or how they're going to be sustained. So behind every covenant is the nature and character of God. And all these covenants we're talking about um, are no more effectual than the God who made them. And so I think we need to think a little bit about the God who made them. And so I'm just going to start off this morning, we're spending just a little bit of time talking about God. Because these covenants rise and fall on God himself. So what I decided to do was to read what is some of what is chapter 2 in a number of the confessions. This is coming from the 1689 London Baptist Convention on God and the Holy Trinity. If you looked at probably any of the other uh, confessions, whether it be the Westminster or the Belgique or the Savoy or the Philadelphia or the New Hampshire, I think they're all very similar the same. But I want to talk a little bit about God because these covenants don't mean anything apart from the nature and character of God. And so, for me personally, I'm a classical theist. I believe in the classical doctrine of God, which has been held by the church for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it goes back to the early church councils, early history of the church. And was really, the doctrine of God was put into very good substance by the confessions during the early part of the Reformation. So, let's read through this and just think about God. I think it'll help us better understand the covenants. So it begins this way. The Lord our God is the one and only and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself. So what doctrine is that? Anybody tell me what doctrine that is? Whose substance is in and of himself. There's a whole list of doctrines of God. This is a very important one. What is this doctrine? God exists. His subsistence is in and of himself. Self-existent? What's that? Self-existent? I mean, I, that's just rephrasing it, I guess. It's yes. not really... Yes. You a name, but I'm not sure. There's a doctrine of self-existence that has a name. One word name. What? Everlasting. No. Sovereign. No. Just tell us. 
to get somewhere if you don't know where you're at to begin with. True. Okay. Are you talking about an attribute of God? Yes. Oh, okay. <clears throat> Absolutely. His subsistence and is in and of himself is his self-existence, but what is the word for that? Do they know? Omnipresent? No. Omnipresence, he's present everywhere yeah. at all times. Eternal. Aseity. 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 Okay. And one of the most important doctrines and, and uh, attributes of God, there is his self-existence in and of himself apart from anything else. Aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. A-S-E-I-T-Y. God is in and of himself. So I'm going to put it up here. That is crucial for these covenants. God is Ase. He is in and of himself. His being uh, belongs to or is a result of nothing or no one else. Okay, the doctrine, the divine doctrine of the aseity of God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, who is infinite in being and perfection whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. So that's another attribute or doctrine of God. When we say his nature, essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, that is a doctrine of what? Somebody mentioned it, I think, earlier. The incomprehensibility of God. Okay. God is incomprehensible. I was listening to, I was traveling Friday, I was listening to a couple of theologians talk about some of the attributes of God and Sinclair Ferguson made this statement I thought it was a good word picture he was sitting out in his garden and a small ant crawled up on his arm so he looked at this ant and he said the possibility of that ant comprehending me in my totality is infinitely less than me comprehending God in his totality. Imagine. So, all of us have had an ant on us. Consider them a past. But they have no chance of comprehending who we are. No chance. In our totality. It is infinitely more true that we don't comprehend the full comprehensibility of God than that ant does of us. That was a great word picture. Okay, since God is infinite in being perfection, his nature cannot be comprehended by any but himself, who is most pure spirit, invisible, without body, without parts, or passions. So it says without parts. Do you know what that doctrine is called? Doctrine of divine... Simplicity. Doctrine of divine simplicity. God is simple. Not simple-minded, 
He's simple. He's without parts. <coughs> think about it. God has to be without parts because if God was had parts, then something would have preceded God, and that would have been the parts. So if God is not simple, it's, there's a lot of things we can talk about. But one is He wouldn't be eternal, and He wouldn't be God. God is also without passions. And I think this plays in massively in these covenants. But the doctrine of God without passions is the doctrine of divine what? Impassibility. The doctrine of divine impassibility is God without passions. Who only has immortality, who dwells in the light which no man can approach, who is immutable. So this should be easy. That is a doctrine of God's what? Immutability. Right. God is immense, eternal, <coughs> incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, most holy, most wise most free, most absolute, who works all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, who is most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, who rewards those who diligently seek him, and who at the same time is most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and from himself, is unique in being all-sufficient, both in himself and to himself, not standing in need of any creature which he has made, nor deriving any glory from such. On the contrary, it is God who manifests his own glory in them, through them, to them, and upon them. He is the only fountain of all being, from whom, through whom, and to whom all things exist and move. He has completely sovereign dominion over all creatures and do through them, for them, or to them, whatever he pleases. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and not dependent on the creature. Therefore, nothing is for him contingent or uncertain. Therefore, nothing for God is contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men whatever worship, service, or obedience they owe as creatures to the Creator, and whatever else he is pleased to require from them. In his divine and infinite being there are three persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. All are one in substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet this essence being undivided. 
The Father is, was not derived from any other being. He was neither brought into being by, nor did he issue from any other being. And these next statements here, I don't want you to get lost in these because it's a whole other study, but I want you to hear it because you've probably never been exposed to it. The Son, I mean, we think that we've heard these words, but we haven't thought about it probably. The Son is eternally begotten from the Father. The Son is eternally begotten from the Father. That is pregnant with a lot of, a lot of meaning in, but we're just leave it at that. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are infinite, without beginning, and are therefore only one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and also their personal relations. This doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of our entire communion with God and our comfortable dependence on Him. So that is chapter 2 on God and the Holy Trinity from the London 1689 Baptist Confession. So I spent, I spent a lot of time this week just thinking about God and uh, just listening to some men who are well trained in the doctrine of God. And I come to one conclusion about myself, and I think it's true of, of all of us, and that is our God, thoughts about God are woefully, woefully deficient. Woefully deficient. And I also think that myself and all of us spend far not enough time thinking about God. And when we think about God, think about God rightly. Rightly. So I really want to encourage you uh, because everything about God, these covenants fully depend on. Take one of his attributes away and they're in trouble. So I really want to encourage you, even our worship, we're going to, you know, we're worshiping right now. We think about worship about when we go in there and sing, but that's not worship, really. Our life is to be worship. Our life. Our life. So as you think about your life, your life consumed with the thoughts and the right thoughts of God. Your life consumed with the right thoughts of God. To worship God, we need to be thinking about God so we can be properly instructed to live like God. So there's two books that are as good as I've read, and they're contemporary, which is good. They're recent. By the same author, and so I'm going to recommend you read them. It's heavy reading. I'm going to recommend you reading them. And I do this with the experience of knowing, uh, having taught Sunday school and Bible studies since I was 21 and was an elder here for a number of years, recommending people good resources and realizing that most people don't take advantage of them. But I still recommend it because people have recommended things to me. And when I took advantage of them, I was greatly profited by it. So I want to encourage you. The man who wrote these, his name is Matthew Barrett. He's actually a professor in Kansas City at Midwest Baptist Theological Seminary. This one here is entitled None Greater. None Greater. It is a classical theistic treaties on the undomesticated attributes of God. That's the subtitle. 
the undomesticated attributes of God. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit because we live in an age where we have domesticated the attributes of God. And so the name for that is theistic personalism. Theistic personalism. In the age we're in, the church has attempted to make God on a personal level relatable to us at our level. That is so true. It is so true. It is rampant. It is rampant. And uh, so he says the undomesticated attributes of God. It's a classical view of the attributes of God. Not domesticated to make him like us. That is a massive, massive temptation. And it's the spirit of our age right now. Just remember it. Theistic personalism. To personalize God so he's like us. I just want to let you know God is not like us. We're creating his image, but he is not like us. Not even close. Not even close. The difference between us and God is incomprehensible. The next one is a book by Matthew Barrett called Simply Trinity. A masterful, classic theistic treatise on the Trinity. And the subtitle is the unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit. So what is the spirit of our age? Is to manipulate the Trinity so we can more better understand it in personal human terms instead of just letting the Trinity be mystery, which it is to a great degree. Because if it wasn't, then we could comprehend God. And God would be comprehensible and he would no longer be God. So two great books that I would recommend you read. So, and I think this morning you can see one of the reasons I want to do this exercise is just to show you where we're at as a group of people in our understanding of the classical doctrine of God, classical theism. We have work to do. We need to be better trained personally. We need to do this. We need to be train ourselves to understand the biblical classical view of the doctrine of God and who God is. Because A.W. Tozer said in his book, what you think of God is the most important thing about you. What you think of God, or what you think about God, is the most important thing about you. Which, which book is that? Knowledge of the Holy? Knowledge of the Holy. Yeah, Tozer's book, Knowledge of the Holy, begins it, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. So the first thing is to do, we have to do is we have to think about God. And I think a lot of us are not thinking much about God. And I say that from personal experience. Okay? Second is, I think when we think about God, we're not lots of times thinking rightly about God. So, I have two assignments for you. Think a lot about God. Think a lot about God. Think that's your life's first priority. To think a lot about God. Second, make sure you're thinking rightly about God. Make sure you're thinking rightly about God. It will do a number of things. One is it will massively humble you. It will massively, massively humble you. When you come to understand God and who He is as much as we can, 
will massively humble you. It will even humble you more when to the fullest extent of your capabilities you comprehend this God who loves you and who died for you. You know, we really can't understand the depth of the gospel and the power of the gospel unless we understand the God behind the gospel. We can't. We can have this uh, surface the understanding of the gospel, but truly understand the depths of what went on, we have to know God. We have to know God. That is eternal life. To know God and Him whom He has sent. To know Jesus and Him. To know God the Father and Him whom He has sent. That is eternal life. So I really want to encourage you to make your life's work to know God and to know rightly about God. Okay, before we move on, any thoughts or questions? I bet you didn't think you were going to get that in the game of church. You didn't, did you? <laughs> Actually, there's nothing more important, nothing greater than we can talk about than God. So actually, it, I think probably a class on the <coughs> classical doctrine of God would be massively profitable at some point in time. That's pretty apparent. Okay. We uh, started, last time I taught, we uh, got started on the Phineas, the Priestly Covenant, and so that's been several months ago, so I'm not going to go back through it all, but I just want to review to kind of bring you up to date to what we went through and get us to where we're at. So last time we talked about all the players that were involved in that incident in Numbers 25, and even all the players that led up to it. Going all the way back, if you remember, to Abraham and Sarah and Geturah <coughs> and Lot and his uh, oldest daughter in Moab, we just developed, we just developed, took all the players from history, developed the event, talked about how it unfolded. Uh, it was Israel's first introduction to Baal worship at Baal of Peor, and uh, we done we done all that. We talked about the characteristics of sin, which were fully <coughs> manifested in that event with the Israelites, with the Moabites, with the two main <coughs> characters, the Israelite <coughs> prince and the Moabitess princess. And the characteristics of sin, I went through that pretty fast, and so I know a lot of you didn't get wrote down what you want to get written down, and I didn't record it. So I put those back up here, but I think the doctrine of sin is something else that we probably uh, could spend a lot of time on because sin is far more serious than we realize sin is. God is far more righteous than we think he is, and we think he's righteous, but he's far more righteous than we actually think he is. He's far more holy than we think he is, and we are far more sinful than we think we are. So anyway, uh, characteristics of sin that are all uh, in this particular event, sin is brazen, it's bold, it has no shame, and that was massively demonstrated. It's rebellious, it's self-gratifying, it's damning, it's deadly, it's disrespectful, self-centered, it's cancerous, selfish, it's willful, it's hard-hearted, it's covetous. And as John Piper said, sin hates the real God. I don't know why I read that. That has really stuck with me. It's one of those little one-liners, you know, that 
You just hear as you go through life that sticks with you. Sin <coughs> the will of God. So if you're looking for that, I wrote those down. You can copy those down. So I want us to turn then today, I want us to turn to the scripture that we're going to be looking at, and that's in Numbers chapter uh, 25. So if you want to turn to Numbers chapter 25, we'll read the event before we get, get going. I do want to point out that this covenant is a perpetual covenant. It's a covenant of peace. And there's a lineage here, Aaron, Phineas, and we'll get to Zadok on as the lesson moves ahead. And then uh, one thing I want to talk about, and obviously we're not even going to get close to getting done today, but I never do get done, so that's okay. That means next time Rick calls, I'll be ready. That's how this, that's how this works. I hope you're catching on. <laughs> uh, there's a tremendous amount of theology in the Old Testament. And of course, the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament as they're developing their theology in the New Testament. So basically, all New Testament theology except the church which was a mystery revealed to Paul, is actually Old Testament theology. So there's a lot of theology in this incident that I want to talk about so to help raise your awareness as you read through the Old Testament to be looking for theology in the Old Testament that's in the New Testament that we as a church believe in and practice and live by. So, justification by faith, imputed righteousness, penal substitutionary atonement, which has six elements. Those are all here in this story. And another one's kind of a takeoff of it, but I think it's very important, is the priesthood of believers. I know that might, that might take a while too, but we're going to get started. So let's turn to Numbers 25 just to uh, remind ourselves of this event. And a lot of times we like to call these things stories, but it is an actual historical event that occurred when Israel was in the wilderness, and let's remember they were just on the west, east side of the Jordan, just ready to cross over the Jordan River into Israel and to take on Jericho. And Moses hadn't died yet. <clears throat> and so here they are, camped on the east side of the Jordan River, getting ready to uh, go into the promised land, Canaan. And so you have this Israelite prince, He's a son of a, he's a Simeonite, and he brings a Midianite princess into his camp, and they have sexual relations. And the unbelievable thing is it happens in broad daylight, right in front of Moses, Aaron, Phineas, and the leaders. Unbelievable. You have the uh, tabernacle sitting in the middle of the camp, and you have three tribes, three tribes, three tribes, three tribes camped right around this. So they're in the center. They're all here. Here's this. The plague has already started. The plague has started. God's judgment for their idolatry with the Moabite people has started. And these two people, right in broad daylight, go into this man's tent and involve themselves in whoredom. Just incredible. So it's a tremendous historical fact that much theological truth comes out of and a lot for us to learn. So if I could get someone to read, um, let's read verses 1 through 15, 1 through 15, chapter 25, Numbers, that'll set the stage for what we're going to talk about. Someone want to do that for us, please? While Israel lived in Shaddam, the 
of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal, and a fear of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my route from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. In the name of the slain men of Israel, who was killed with the Midianite woman, was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the woman, and the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the uh, daughter of Zer, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, just a quick thought, or I didn't write this down, but just looking at this event, what uh, what doctrines or attributes of God can you see at play with this event, and what other covenants of God do you see at play in this event, if any? Okay. It's hatred for sin. It's holiness. Something to learn here. Phineas was jealous for the honor of God. That was a big theological statement. So a question to think about is, are you jealous for the honor of God? Are you jealous for the honor of God? Okay. What else can you see at play here when it, when it comes from a, a doctrine of God or an attribute of God standpoint or possibly other covenants? This, he, this is the covenant of peace. Phineas' covenant is the covenant of peace. 
merciful. He didn't just kill them all right away when they started worshiping Baal. Okay. And then he's <coughs> yeah, you and I probably would have destroyed him, right? We'd have taken some nasty punity back to him. So, merciful. What other action, what other attributes or doctrines can you think of that we talked about this morning that are in play here? Obviously, there's mercy. But we talked about several this morning that are in play here that tell us why God did not destroy them and why this event did not cause God to destroy them. Anybody want to make a stab? Because of his covenant with Abraham? Exactly, that's one. That's not an attribute, that's a covenant, which we talked about covenant. There's a covenant in play here. The Abrahamic covenant. Is he going to destroy these people? Not if he's true to his nature. Not if he's true to his attributes. Not if he's God. So the covenant of Abraham is in play here. He's already promised Abraham through these people. He's going to bless all the earth. So how's he going to destroy him? He's not. Because the covenant of Abraham is in play. God already covenanted with Abraham based upon his character, his nature, and who he is. Okay. What about the doctrine of divine immutability? Is that in play here? How do we respond if we give blessings and gifts and just treasures to people and they turned around and responded like the Israelites toward us? What would we do? Our dispositions would change. Our dispositions would change, wouldn't it? Massively change. We're mutable. Did God's disposition change? didn't. So there's two doctrines in play right there. Hugely important because if those doctrines weren't in play and were true to God, he likely would have destroyed The doctrine of immutability, God does not change, and the doctrine of impassibility. God is not overcome by outside influence or passions that would cause him to change how he feels or acts toward someone. Massively important. The doctrine of impassibility, the doctrine of immutability are both on full display in this event. Full display. Royce. Well, one of his attributes being loving kindness would cause him to preserve that remnant of Abrahamic. Is that in line with what we're talking about? Say that again. His loving kindness, the attribute of that, caused is responsible for God to preserve the remnant of his people, the Abrahamic covenant of preserving them. Yes, but what kind of love and what kind of kindness? Is. <laughs> but what kind is that? It's important. Everlasting. Everlasting. But why is it's it ever, an oath it's everlasting? But why is it everlasting? Eternal. But why is it eternal? Because he's the God. Because he's, he's God. God. <laughs> because he's God. And there's a character, characteristic about God to him. He's immutable. But his love and kindness are impassable. That's why that doctrine is so important. His love, his kindness is never affected by any outside influence or stimulation. 
That's why the psalmist can write, his love is steadfast. His love is everlasting. His steadfast love, his steadfast love. Why is it steadfast? Because his love is not like ours. Our love is passable. We love because of some outside stimuli. That's who we are. That is not biblical love. Read 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? How much passable love you see in 1 Corinthians 13? Love that responds from stimuli. None. 1 Corinthians 13 love is agape love. That is unconditional. That loves regardless. It comes from within. So God's emotions, God's reactions to an event are always from within him and are never from without. For us, almost always from without. It takes a major act and work of the Spirit for us to love as God loves. So we can love someone with a pure, holy love like God loves with no outside reinforcement. That's a God-made love. That's love that's being demonstrated right here in this event. God's agape, impassable, immutable, immutable love for the descendants of Abraham. And that's why that covenant can be relied upon because that's the nature of God. Okay, does that make sense? Any thoughts, any questions? I think it's a great area. It shows you how much unlike God we are. Here's another one where his impassibility comes into play. Does he hate sin here? Do you think he hates sin more here than anywhere else? No. His hatred for sin is infinite and complete and is always infinite and complete. Never diminishes, never becomes greater. If God hated sin worse here than he had in a previous incident, then God changed. And that means God is becoming and not being. And if God is not being, he's not God. God is being. He's aseity. We are human beings. We are not self-existent. We don't exist in and of ourselves. We are becoming. We are mutable. So, massively different than God. Okay, this covenant that we're uh, read, read about, that Suzanne wrote about, is it's everlasting, it's perpetual, but it's not eternal. So this is not an eternal covenant. It's an everlasting, perpetual covenant for as long as uh, the earth remains. But it's not an eternal covenant. It's given at the very end of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. And the atonement that Phineas made was a sacrifice of two human offenders, his covenant of peace. And call that because when Phineas killed those two human offenders, peace was made between the sinning Israelites and God through his atoning action. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. So the covenant given to Phineas included his descendants and was a perpetual priesthood 
designating its enduring nature. So I kind of want to walk you through that. So let's turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 6. 1 Chronicles chapter 6. Got a few verses I want us to read there. In 1 Chronicles chapter 6 is the family of Levi. So if we'll go to 1 Chronicles 6 and head to verse 49. So basically I just want to start the lineage of Phinehas because we'll need that as we move forward. So in verse 49 it says, But Aaron and his sons offered sacrifices on the altar of burnt offering and on the altar of incense for all the work of the most holy place and to make atonement for Israel according to all that Moses, servant of God, had commanded. Now these are the sons of Aaron. Eleazar his son, Phinehas his son, Abushai his son, Bukai his son, Uzai his son, Zerahiah his son, <coughs> Meriaoth his son, Amariah his son, Ahitub his son, Zadok his son, and Hamaz his son. So here we see that one of the descendants of Phinehas is Zadok. Zadok. That's going to be very important to remember in this priestly covenant. So let's turn over to Ezekiel 44. Ezekiel chapter 44. So I just want to, I just want to fetch out uh, the perpetual everlasting priest, priesthood of Phinehas for you. So you can see that this is in the scripture and not something that we pulled out of midair. Ezekiel chapter 44 and we're going to start at verse 10. Verse 10. And just uh, just to give you some context, you know, if you go back to Ezekiel 38, it's the famous uh, prophecy of Ezekiel and Gog and Magog regarding the end time, the last battle. I think a lot of you are familiar with that. And so, uh, chapter 39, Gog's armies are destroyed. There's the burial of Gog. There's a triumphal festival. Israel is restored to the land. So this is the beginning of the millennial, millennial reign, the 1,000 years. And in chapter 40, and in all this, Ezekiel has been transported from Babylon in the spirit, I guess. He's transported to Jerusalem and given this vision. And he's writing it and recording it. So in, in chapter 40, we see a new city and a new temple. Uh, the eastern gateway, the temple, the outer court, the northern gateway, the southern gateway, where sacrifices were prepared. And just, I mean, it's a <coughs> tremendous description of the new temple in the millennium that's going to be built. Uh, dimensions of the sanctuary in chapter 41 and chapter 42, the chambers for the priests. Chapter 43, the temple, the Lord's dwelling place. Christ will be ruling from Jerusalem and dwelling in the temple during the thousand years. And in chapter 44, there's laws governing priests in this new millennial temple. Okay? So we're future yet from where we're at. Not sure how far, but future yet. So verse 10. And the Levites who went astray far from me when Israel went astray, who strayed away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary as gatekeepers of the house and ministers of the house. They shall slay the burnt offering and the sacrifice of the people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them. 
Because they ministered to them before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity, therefore I have raised my hand in an oath against them, says the Lord God, that they shall bear their iniquity. And they shall not come near, to, come near me to minister to me as priest, nor come near any of my holy things, nor into the most holy place, but they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Nevertheless, I will make them keep charge of the temple for all its work and for all that has been done to it. So here you have this group of Levites who cannot perform the priestly functions because of past idolatry in the millennial temple. But in 15, look at this. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary, and the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall come near my table to minister to me, and they shall keep, me, keep my charge. So in the millennium, this everlasting perpetual priesthood continues as God promised, covenanted it would, through Phineas, through Zadok. Zadok. Let's go over to 48. 48.11. Ezekiel 48 verse 11. We see this reiterated again when we see the land of Israel, the division of the land during the millennial. And it says, It shall be for the priests of the sons of Zadok who are sanctified who have kept my charge, who did not go astray when the children of Israel went astray as the Levites went astray. So we can see down the road from here, so this would be, where, year 2000, and this probably occurred, I'm, I don't know, maybe 1400, I, I didn't look it up, I'll say maybe 1400 BC, I think, was about the time of Moses was given the law in the wilderness. So 3400 years ago, right now, this event occurred about 3,400 years ago. That's 3,400 years ago. In a future event, we don't know how far away it is. It's going to last 1,000 years. The promise God made Phineas 3,400 years ago is still going to be in effect. That covenant is going to play out in the millennium. And here's the amazing thing. We're going to be there and watch it. We're going to see it because we're going to be here during the millennium on the earth. This is incredible. We're actually going to see that covenant and that promise lived out in real life. That's amazing. That's amazing. I think it's amazing. I think it's incredible. Let's turn to Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah chapter 33. Just go back to your left. You get Lamentations. And you got Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 33, we begin at verse 19. 19. And if you want a great chapter to read sometime, read Jeremiah chapter 3, because we're actually going to visit this again. We're not going to get to it today, but we're going to visit this again. That's amazing. Just amazing. There are actually three, there are three covenants in play here. The Abrahamic, priestly, and Davidic covenants are all right here within a few verses of each other in the book of Jeremiah. It is just pregnant with all kinds of theology and covenants. So I'm, I'm actually going to start at 
16. I'm going to start at verse 16. Jeremiah 33. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called the Lord our righteousness. Right there in the Old Testament is this theology. Imputed righteousness. That should be called the Lord our righteousness. The righteousness of God had been imputed to them. Where to come from? The Lord. Who's our righteousness? The Lord. Who's our righteousness? The Lord. Lord. Why? Because of imputation. Look at 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Or shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings, and to sacrifice continually. So there we have the Abrahamic, priestly, and Davidic covenants all in play in those two verses. All three of them. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, If you could break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, what covenant is that? No ache. No ache. So there's four covenants in three verses in play. That's why I have said as the theme is God's covenants drive the narrative of human history. They drive it. They drive it. If you want to stand human history from God's perspective, understand the covenants. That's what's going on. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in their season. Can we do that? We can't do that, can we? Then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of sea measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. This Phineas covenant, this everlasting perpetual covenant of peace that God gave to Phineas is as certain as day and night. It's that certain. How certain is that? As certain as God is. As certain as God is. And that's a good place to stop. Right there. Any questions? Comments? Thoughts? Verse 18 there, that 33, says that um, Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings. Uh So is that going to continue in the millennium then? Yes. Which is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Like Jesus was the final That's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> whole nother discussion, but that, that's exactly right. So maybe, maybe. Now, I would need to study that more because I'm not sure I'd be prepared to give uh, a rational apologetic on that the moment without I mean I've done some reading on it, some studying on it. And I'm not sure uh, theologians fully understand the the full force or impact of why that's gonna be the case. They got some ideas, but that, that appears to be what's gonna happen. You know <laughs> we're forgetful. 
we and it is to remind wow a certain time frame to remind us of the blood shed by Christ but otherwise you know that's what it's for not to atone for our sins Christ has already who believe that Christ already sacrificed himself for our salvation for our you know that's that's but us to remind us of the blood he shed. That's that's a good point, Jeff. And there are some theologians, and I I think there's that's there's some validity to that. Is we'll be able to actually visually see the comparison between the greater sacrifice and the lesser sacrifice. Actually, visualize, be able to see, uh, not remotely, but in person, not via Zoom, or you might be able to. Animal sacrifice, so yes, it's imperfect sacrifice can never take away the blood. I mean, take away sin, and they have. In presence, the perfect greater sacrifice to atone for all sin. And so, yeah, there's a number of reasons why God could be doing that. But again, I'm not going to get into that because that's a long one. <laughs> Deep. Anything else? The Levite tribe, that was one. What's that? The Levite tribe, the tribe of Levite, uh-huh. the priestly. Um, were they done away with? I can't remember. <laughs> Tell me, well, I, they were not done away with, but what happened is, this is what's going to be really interesting, is in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed everything. And so the Jews do not have any lineage to know who's from what tribe. It was all destroyed. They kept meticulous records. You know, everybody knew who they were clear back to Abraham, basically. They had those records. And so they knew who the Levites were, the priestly tribe, lost. It's lost. So how are we going to come up with the Levites, the descendants of Phineas and Zadok, to serve in the Millennial Temple? Because God knows their lineage. God knows their lineage. <laughs> exactly right. That is, that is my best answer. Because God knows their, God knows their lineage. However, they are attempting right now, number of things going on, uh, they are the are they're attempting right now to restart. They want to build the temple, so they're working on it. They're breeding the red. They're breeding red heifers, so they can come up with a perfect red heifer to offer that sacrifice. They are actually doing DNA work. I don't know how they're doing it, but what they're doing, but they're doing DNA work to see if they can possibly identify who the tribe of Levi was by uh, DNA. I don't know how they can do that, but and maybe they can. Maybe they can. I don't know. I don't know how God's going to work this out. But uh, it's going on right now in Israel. So that's a sign of what's going on in the earth. That's where we're at prophetically, is God is putting in His people, in His land, the desire to begin the operations of what is going to come to fulfillment. It's going on right now. I mean, that's not a, you know, some kind of a conspiracy theory. It's actually happening. So anyway, okay. it's five after... Think about God, love God, so God.